Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. Well, good morning. Before we uh, jump full into Ephesians, I just need to have kind of a family conversation with you. Uh, Some of you know that we kind of quarterly send out uh, new volunteer schedules, all those kinds of things. And uh, we came to you a couple months ago and we said, hey, we're short on some kids volunteers. And if we don't get some people to step up, we're gonna have to close classrooms for a couple days. We had some wonderful uh, people step up. We had people serve double. We had new volunteers who are on the fence step in. And uh, we thankfully got all of those dates filled in and figured out, and uh, we thank you and praise God for that. Yeah, that's worth, that's worth a little celebration. I'm glad you're so enthusiastic about it because we're doing the next schedule, and uh, we've got some holes. We've got some opportunities for people to serve. We have some opportunities to uh, potentially be in the same situation. Now, I don't like doing this every single time, right? Like, I don't like coming and going, we have to close classrooms, help quick. Um, but I do have to draw attention to the fact that we have some wonderful kids workers who are back there and serving. We have a number of volunteers who are taking some well-earned time off. They've served faithfully. I think that uh, some of the conversations that, hey, we've been serving in kids' ministry for like seven-plus years, and we just need a rotation off. We want to bless those people. We want to give them space and time off. Some of you are kind of on the fence about, man, do we join somewhere? Do we sign up? Let me tell you, kids' ministry uh, is as fun as it gets. You get to sing songs. You get to praise worship. And there's nothing that grows your faith like teaching somebody else uh, some of the basic concepts of what you believe and why. So we have a couple opportunities for people to serve in kids' ministry. I want to invite you to serve in that capacity. I want to challenge you to take a step in. I want you to think and thoughtfully pray about what would it look like to serve even one Sunday a month in that capacity. Maybe you're already serving there and you're going, how would we make up if we did two times of serving? But we have some opportunities in kids ministry and uh, I would be remiss not to share them with you. So if you want to learn more about that, uh, have a conversation with Miss Trista. She's our uh, uh, childhood director back there. Uh, Or you can write a note in your bulletin just say, hey, send me some uh, information about kids ministry. If you've been on the fence for a while, maybe you never turned in an application, we have more volunteer applications at the kids check-in station. But uh, my goal is to really kind of firm up where we're at with this so that we don't have to keep panicking and going, help, we need volunteers, we're going to have to close classrooms. Uh, I would much rather equip Miss Trista and equip all of our volunteers to have the rest that they need, uh, but also to make sure that our kids have an opportunity to hear about Jesus. Does that sound okay with you? I'm happy that two of you agree. That's fantastic. Uh, I know that's heavy. I know that's a lot. I know that you may be feeling a little bit, I don't know, guilty or what should I do about that, but uh, this is what it means to be a church family. It's what it means to belong together. Those of us that have kids know that sometimes we just need the break, and I know that you're so grateful for those kids' volunteers. Make sure you thank them when you pick up their kids, when you pick up your kids, when you say, hey, thanks for serving in this capacity. Thanks for teaching my kids about Jesus. Thanks for just giving me an hour where I can maybe focus on myself and not just whatever's going on in that chaos. Um, So thank them, but also recognize that as a family, we have opportunities to step in. I hope that you'll consider that. hope you'll have a conversation or write a note in your bulletin, and uh, we'll look forward to having more of those conversations and less of these conversations. Does that sound good? 
awesome. Thanks so much for that. Let's jump in with a little bit of history. We're in Ephesians, but let's talk about the Roman Empire, right? Ephesians is written at a point in time where it exists within the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is one of the largest empires ever to have existed and to span both the geography, the course of time, and the things that were done under those rules. It was a ruthless form of expansion that we've ever seen potentially on the face of the earth. The Romans ruled and expanded their rule across the reach of what is today Europe and the entire Mediterranean region. Now, in Rome, they were ruled by kings who claimed to be gods. The word that they used was Caesar, right? Julius Caesar was said to be the son of a god, and they would conquer in the name of their lord. A confession would be happening after you were overcome by this king, by this army, and a confession might sound something like Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. Caesar protects and Caesar prevails, or there is no God but Caesar. Now, upon conquering new lands, the Roman government would establish their places there. They would build structures. They would build highways and aqueducts. They would build garrisons and forts to hold their troops. They would reward the local rulers with palaces and fanfare, and buildings would spring up, and they would share the good news around the empire about how the, about how the Roman Empire had come and how their territory was expanding, how Caesar was being lifted high. The word for that good news is euangelion. It's where we get the word evangelism, the sharing of good news. Now, in a new territory, there would be a group of leaders that would usually be appointed that was in line with the new Caesar. These would be viewed as turncoats, as traitors, people who would disavow their loyalty with the regional government and instead opt for the new power, namely Rome. This group was called uh, a people called out to rule, called an ecclesia. We translate the word church. Now, here's what I want you to hear. It's into this story of the Roman Empire, of conquest, of good news, and of those called out to rule in which the early church is formed. Specifically, this letter written by Paul to the Ephesians exists in this time and in this place. And Paul is trying to tell a different story, but he's trying to use concepts that are familiar with his audience. So as we go through, there are some language idioms that we miss throughout the course of this. There's some pieces of the story that because we're not members and citizens of the Roman Empire, that they just kind of go over our head. But Paul is intentionally zooming in in a couple of the scriptures that we'll work on today to talk about things that are very specific, that are very concrete to his readers that we may be missing. So we're in week three of Ephesians. We're going to stick with chapter two because we've got some time to walk slowly through this. Uh, But we've been talking about the fact that we need to read alongside throughout this week. So let me see hands. How many of you are doing your reading assignments? How many of you are listening? I think that we're up from last week. That's fantastic. Uh, If not, porch.church backslash Bible. You can get a reading plan that will buzz your phone at every single time uh, that you want it to. It's called the Bible app and you can say, hey, every morning morning at 7 a.m., tell me what passage I'm supposed to read, and you can walk through Ephesians one chapter a day. Maybe you need a way to listen on your commute. There's a fantastic app that's brand new called Dwell. It's dwell.io. You can find it at that website, and uh, just listen to God's Word on your commute. Listen to it while you're uh, on the light rail, whatever it is for you, but the point is that as we do a deep dive into Ephesians that we're going to miss things, and we're going to miss connections if we're not translating Sunday into our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday 
Saturday. It's not just a Sunday thing. This is an everyday thing, and I want to make sure that you're invited and challenged into that. Here's some background to this letter, though, right? So Paul is a Roman citizen. He's writing to other Roman citizens. He also happens to be Jewish. He's a Jewish teacher. And so Paul is trying to relate some of these concepts as he writes a letter to the Romans in Ephesians, right? He, refu- he refers to these people as Gentiles, which we can basically understand as anybody who was not Jewish by birth, Jewish by heritage or nationality. But Paul is trying to do what all of us are trying to do. He's trying to translate something that's deep and meaningful and personal, something that is inside of him that he has come to learn and come to understand, and he's trying to translate it with people who don't see the world in the same way that he does, who don't understand things in the same way that he does. He's trying to translate something that's internal and meaningful into something that's meaningful for those who are external. We all do this at varying points of our lives. This is called parenting, right? We're trying to instill values from ourselves into our children. This is called work, where we take things that are important to us that we see as vital in our connection with the world, and we use it to serve those ends and to make the world more in line with what we view to be correct. This is the argument that you had with your spouse, trying to get them to understand where you came from. This is the resolution to those things. We're all trying to take what's inside of us and connect connect it with someone on the outside, whether it's a person or a job or, in today's instance, perhaps a god. So Paul, a Roman citizen, is writing to other Roman citizens. He's probably writing from a Roman prison, which means he's just steeped in the Roman Empire. He's steeped in its traditions. He sees it out his window. He interacts with it every day and in every way. And he's trying to connect with the story of God's love and forgiveness to this Roman Empire, to these citizens, to these people of Ephesus who haven't grown up in his traditions, who haven't grown up in his way. And so to help him do this, he's going to rely on some concepts that his readers would have understood that we might miss. He's going to talk about things that are known in Rome but might be unknown to us. And he's going to use those concepts to reframe the gospel, to tell the same story but to use it in a culturally sensitive a cultural context kind of way. He wants to reframe it to redeem those constructs and to let them serve the gospel and to serve Christ. So with that huge background, let's jump in. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. It's on page 549. If you want to follow along in one of the worship center Bibles, slip up your hand. Our ushers are walking around. You're welcome to follow along. It's going to be on page 549, page 549. If you don't own a Bible, just keep this. It's our gift to you. Uh, But we're going to be at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to jump in right where we left off last week at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, read non-Jewish people, by birth and called uncircumcised, in quotes, by those who call themselves the circumcision, little aside, which is done in the body by human hands. We'll come back to that. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
So a couple of asides there. He starts out with a very, very contextual illustration, which is this whole idea of circumcision. This is an Old Testament idea, and there's an argument circling around whether or not in order to follow Jesus, do you first have to become a Jew? You first have to follow all the Old Testament customs, all the Old Testament regulations in order to pursue Christ. Paul essentially wants to end the argument, and he says, look, circumcision is done in the body by human hands. I'm talking about spiritual identity. I'm talking about spiritual community. Let's just move on. He tries to quell the argument. He says, we're not going to fight about that. We're not going to argue about that. It's immaterial. It's not important. That's dealing with physical issues. I want to talk about spiritual things. It's his way to kind of just move on from it. He's using past language again. We talked about this last week, that he's reflecting back to where they were, where they came from. Remember that you were this way. Remember that you were separated from Christ. And he's going to move us through the progression of who we were and who we are now and what that means to us in the future. These three paragraphs that we're going to read follow the same structure as far as that's concerned as the three preceding paragraphs that we talked about last week. Now, he uses the term citizenship. He says you were separated from citizenship. Let's talk about why that's a big idea. If you were a Roman citizen, it meant really, really big implications, right? The difference between a Roman citizen, someone who was born a citizen, who earned their citizenship through fighting or who had money to purchase it, meant that you had certain rights afforded to you across the empire. And in an expanding empire, you had people who were Roman citizens, and then you had people who were conquered, who were not citizens, but they were just occupied territory. So Paul uses this illustration to say, you know what it means to be a citizen of Rome. Well, let's go back to the time before you were a citizen of Israel, before you were a citizen of God's kingdom. You were separated. You were pushed out. You did not belong. You did not have the inherent rights and principles. You weren't able to be connected. Romans would have understood citizenship as a very, very practical idea. They would have understood the benefits that then come from being a part of being a citizen in God's kingdom. So he conveys Christ and he puts it in terms that they can understand. Once you are far away, but now you are brought near. Think about this. In the context that he's writing, where did the emperor, where did Caesar live? Chances are he lived far away. God, Caesar, was in Rome. You're in Ephesus. You're days' journeys away. The empire expanded from what is Spain and Germany all the way around the Mediterranean to Liberia, Egypt, all the way over to the coast. Translation, God was far away. Caesar was far away. The rules were far away. And Paul says, not so with this God, not so with this Jesus. This God is close. This God is near. This God actually takes up residence with inside of you. This God chooses to live and work and to have you be his masterpiece, not to craft masterpieces in order to serve him, as was the case with Caesar. So Paul is writing this very Roman letter to his audience. He talks about citizenship. He talks about empire. He talks about concepts that they would have readily understood. Now, for the rest of our time, I really want to focus in on one concept, actually just one word that's going to come up three times in the next paragraph that we read. And that one concept, that one word was meaningful for them. Hopefully, it's meaningful for us today. And we just need to parse out the argument because it'll go right over our heads if we don't. The word is peace, okay? Everybody say peace. 
peace. Okay, so here's the deal with peace, right? Peace is simply an absence of strife. I went to Google, which is where the dictionary resides today, right? So here's what Google says about peace. Freedom from disturbance, quiet and tranquility, or freedom from or the cessation of war or violence, right? Peace, does that fit with everybody's working definition, right? End of war, cessation of violence, we're good with all that tranquility, quietness, okay, I can understand that. Now, to get the word peace, we actually draw from a Latin derivative, that word is pox. Everybody say pox, P-A-X. Pox meant peace. It meant harmony. It meant tranquility. It meant a cessation of war. However, let's take a little bit of history lesson. I don't know if you remember world history, but there's a term called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It actually happens right in this time period from a little bit before Jesus' birth up until about the year 200 after his death. The Pax Romana was just as it sounds. It was a Roman peace. It was a time during which there was no strife, no wars. There was peace across this vast empire. During the Pax Romana, the kingdom expanded. You can see on this map, it's written in Latin, so don't exactly try to read it, but you can see the colors as they progress, how we started small and then we ended up adding and adding and adding to it. Now, let's talk history a little bit. How do empires expand peacefully? Right? Not well, right? It's not like people are coming to surrender, going like, we just want to be a part, please let us in. Um, we don't want any autonomy, we don't want to be freedom, please enslave us and oppress us, right? That's not what's happening here. So the Pax Romana is a period of relative peace. What do we mean by that in history? We mean we didn't lose, right? That's what peace translates to. We're still taking territory. We're still advancing. But peace through the Roman eyes was a kind of forceful peace. It was a peace through power. It was a might makes right. It was a peace that involved oppression and pushing people aside. It was a peace that involved expanding an empire. See, peace in Rome, peace that came from Caesar, from that God, was the peace that comes without stopping, without stomping out all oppression. It's peace through power. See, peace in Rome meant that no one was pushing back. Peace in Rome meant that you were winning the war. Peace in Rome was only peace depending on which side of the equation that you were on. If you were a Roman citizen, if you were a Roman army veteran, if you were the Caesar, Rome was at peace because there was no opposition. But if you were the people who were being oppressed and expanded upon, peace didn't feel like peace. So Paul's writing to a Roman audience and he uses the word peace and immediately what pops into their head is this concept. Cessation of war. Caesar brings peace. With, but with peace, there is no war. With peace, there is still advancement. Peace is winning. There's another concept, right, that Paul would have known about being the Jewish scholar that he is. There's a Jewish word for peace. You probably have heard it before. That word is shalom. Let me hear you say shalom. Shalom means peace. But it doesn't mean peace through power and peace through war. It means peace in the world. It means the world as God intended it. It means everything as it should be and ought to be. It means peace with God and reconciliation and peace with creation and peace between nations. It means the fullness of God's presence here and now. And shalom is found through Messiah. See, Messiah brings a different kind of peace. I found one Jewish scholar who defined shalom this way. 
Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of, of, of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior, opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Notice the, notice the difference in these two concepts. One means peace through advancement, peace through war, might makes right, peace through power. The other means that peace has already been brought upon us, that Jesus brings in peace for us, and we simply have to find ourselves coming underneath and coming alongside the peace that is already present. See, in Christ we have peace with God, but that peace is so much more than God not just being angry with us. That peace is so much more than simply not being at odds with God. That peace is about bringing in wholeness and fullness and reconciliation. But you can see, I don't need that anyway, don't worry. But, I, but you can see the dichotomy between these two words. Paul is writing to a Roman audience, not steeped in Jewish tradition. And he wants to talk about the peace that Christ brings and the way in which it's ushered in. But he goes, if I just say peace, if I don't define it, then they're going to think peace through war, peace through might makes right. And what I'm trying to introduce them to is the peace that comes through Jesus, the peace of shalom, of fullness, of God's rightly ordered world. Let's listen to how he conveys this thought in this next paragraph. Ephesians 2, let's start at verse 14. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace. He doesn't bring peace, he is peace. Who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility." He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Christ is our peace. He ushers in peace, but this isn't a might makes right kinds of thing that says that he destroys the wall of hostility. He comes in to make what was two into one. Now let's go back into empire, right? Does empire make two things into one? No. Empire makes one thing into one, right? You become a part of us. We rule, we reign. We're not bringing along your ideas into this. You're second class. You're simply conquered. You don't get to be a Roman citizen. You are simply occupied. He says Jesus doesn't work like that. Jesus removes the barrier and he forms a new united peace process. Going back to week one, this is what God's purpose was, unity under Christ. Whether you're far away in Rome or whether you're close to Jerusalem in the temple, whether you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, Jesus destroys the two and makes them into one new people in his name. Now, I know you all are falling asleep, so I'm going to wake us up real quick here, okay? I don't want to get too political, but 2,000 years ago, written in a document that we have in front of us, it says that he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. You ready to tiptoe into this or should we just dive in? Here we go. 
peace from Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility, but we're living in a time where we are actively building up walls of division. Actively, whether we take that completely literally or whether we take it figuratively as we talk about race and sexism and all these kinds of dividing things that come between us, whether it's politics and people who can't work across the aisle, people who just think that the other person is the worst possible thing imaginable. We live in a culture and in a time and in a space with internet and with differing opinions and how everybody can just kind of spew out what they want to spew out, that we are not actively removing walls of hostility. We are building them up in no matter what context you look at it. Jesus came to remove the walls of hostility, and we're all trying to build ourselves a safe space. We're trying to build a protective space to achieve it through putting other people in their place, right? The loudest voice with the best argument and the right political spin on TV win the day. Politicians on both sides of the issue are trying to convince us that the other person's policies seek to destroy this country that we live in. And so brick by brick, we build hostility into our conversations. Walls of hostility that separate us, that we're protected by weapons while we're forcing the rest of the world to come to us on our terms. In other words, we want peace so long as we get to define it. We want peace so long as we're the strong ones. We want peace so long as it's on our terms. We want an absence of war or at least losing wars. We're still fighting, right? We just don't call it wars. We call it peace, and we're protecting our investments. We call it peace, and we build walls. We call it peace, and we arm our teachers. We call it peace, but it sounds a whole lot like pox. Now, make no mistake, right? We're citizens of this country. We're free to disagree on so many things, but Paul is writing to Roman citizens, and he's trying to call their attention to a higher plane of existence. You know what it is to belong to a country. You know what it is to be a citizen and the rights there entailed. Now, let me tell you that in Jesus, you are a citizen of a higher nation. You serve a higher purpose, and the rights that are afforded to you in the blood of Jesus is so much greater than the rights that were given to you because you were born a citizen. We're talking about Rome though, right? Not us? A little bit of both. If we're fighting for peace by building walls, by bullying other countries, and by using our power and influence to make the world bend to our will, friends, we're fighting for the wrong kingdom. Sometimes we want pox. Jesus offers shalom. Sometimes we want might makes right. When I'm arguing with my kids, I want pox, not shalom, right? Do what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it now. You with me? Sometimes in, a, in uh, my marriage, we don't fight. We fellowship intensely. Sometimes during these moments of intense fellowship, I just want peace. By that, I mean, listen, sweetheart. Okay? Just, I got this, okay? Sometimes I want pox in my relationships at work, which is odd because we're at my work right now. Um, but sometimes I just want peace to reign. I just want people to do what they're told to do. Sometimes I want might makes right in my relationships. It's so much easier that way because then I get to be right. Jesus doesn't offer us that, though. 
Jesus doesn't offer a build walls and expand your kingdom kind of perspective. He says, come into a peaceful way of existence where the world is put right back within my structure, where you can have peace with God and peace with man and peace with people who are different no matter what that looks like. Jesus doesn't offer us an absence of strife, but he offers us purpose in suffering. Jesus doesn't offer a wall to protect our physical bodies, but he does ensure our souls from, a fi- from the fires of a godless eternity. Jesus doesn't answer every question, but he does answer the question. He destroys the barriers of hostility that separate us. And he offers us restoration, whether we are American or Roman, whether we are Mexican or Syrian, Iranian or Chinese, no matter your identity or sexual preference. I'll say that again. No matter your identity or sexual preference, God breaks down the walls of hostility. And where there is separation, he unites us under Christ. He is our peace, not not might makes right, not enforcing our views on the world, but coming into God's existence and his plane of reference. See, pox is man-made. It's fleeting, and it changes every time the person in power changes. It's unreliable, it's undependable, and it's the wrong kind of peace. Shalom is an invitation to step into a reality where God is sovereign and to partner with him, not in advancing an ideology, but in restoring creation back to the way that it should be, at peace with God, with each other, and with our world. So if your peace comes from building a wall, you might have pox and not shalom. If your peace comes from the gun that you own, you might not have shalom, you might just have pox. If your peace comes from your house with a lock on the door, you might not have shalom, you might just have pox. If your peace comes from the size of your paycheck, the money in the bank, your 401k, you might have peace of mind, but you'll never have peace of soul. Because peace is found in Jesus who breaks down the things that separates us and unite us under him. Here's the translation. Don't build a wall that Christ has already torn down. Don't build a wall of hostility. Don't build a wall of separation when it's been Christ's purpose to unite us. Paul says because of Jesus that his peace brings us the unity found in him and reconciliation. That we now have a new direction to recognize the same patterns as we had last week. Right Last week we said you were dead, you've been made alive, and now you have something to do. Today he says you were separated, but now because of Christ you have peace with God. You have shalom, not simply pox, but you have an abiding presence with God. So what now then ought we to do? Let's finish our paragraph paragraphs, verse 19. He says, consequently, because of all this, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. He appeals to citizenship, but he adds a family element, a household, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
You were separated, now you're brought near and you're brought so near that God wants to build a household. Remember the concept of Roman buildings, they would advance and they would build, but God says, I'm not building highways and byways, I'm not building military structures, what I'm building is a home in which I can live in and that home is your heart. This is shalom, God's presence fully involved at every layer, at every intricate working of your life. The fullness of God coming to play in your world and in your reality. The contrast, of course, is physical buildings, things that deteriorate, that break down, that will not last and do not endure. We are his masterpiece, his palace. He's building us up for an enduring eternity, not temporary like the Roman Empire or even perhaps like our country. So let's step aside from a narrative 2,000 years old and let's see where we can draw some connection points. Past couple of weeks, we had some tremendous tragedies that came to life. I'm thinking of Molly Tibbetts and how it came to light this week that she was perhaps murdered by someone who was here illegally. Now it's becoming political fodder on both sides of the issue as we talk about building walls of hostility. Also, just this past week, right, our own community in our own backyard, there was a man who murdered his wife, two children, presumably, and an unborn child, which counts as another first degree of murder, by the way. Here's the reality. Evil will always find a way so long as it's within our hearts. There is no wall big enough, tall enough, deep enough. There is no structure that exists to protect us from the evil that dwells inside of our own hearts, except that Christ is our peace. Jesus comes in and he says, let me build a new reality. Let me take your cold, dead heart of stone and let me give it light and life and something new, a restoration of all things under Jesus. See, pox, peace through power is a lie. It's a farce. It's not real. It does not last. But shalom is real. It's good. And it's ours in Christ. So let me just ask us all a question today. Which kind of peace do you want? Do you want might makes right? Do you want the person in power makes the rules? Or would you like to subscribe to a different ideology, a different way of seeing the world? Maybe a better question is this, do you have peace? Do you have peace in your life? Do you have peace in your home? Do you have peace about the way that the world is going around you? Can you sleep at night? Or do some of these conversations that we're having have you all riled up and arguing at work and arguing at home and things just don't seem peaceful? They certainly, certainly don't seem in line with the way that God might perhaps order and structure the world. Here's the reality. Peace is ours in Jesus. It says He is our peace. He ushers in God's kingdom. He ushers in a way of living in which we can find ourselves in right relationship with God. So on a scale of pox to shalom, where's your peace? On a scale of man-made, human-controlled, always have to have things right and I make the rules versus everything orders itself according to God's principles, where are you at on your peace? 
Because the reality is that everybody's fighting for peace. Everybody's trying to remove strife. But when we do that through power and through coercion and through building walls of hostility, we're only going to find ourselves more frustrated. You may have peace for a season. You may have a Pax Romana where, hey, we're not at war, but we're still advancing a false peace. Or you may be able to subscribe to a peace that's existed since the foundations of the world in which God created us to be in relationship with Him through Christ's blood. As we've said before, you can have anything you want, you just can't have everything you want. Which kind of peace will you choose? Which kingdom will you serve? There is a difference. There are layers of peace. And Christ offers you and me a way to experience peace that we could never manufacture, that could never be provided by a government or by laws or by a wall or by anything else. Christ offers us a soul-abiding, eternity-lasting peace. Do you have it? Do you want it? Let's pray. quietness of this moment, I'd encourage you just to take a soul inventory. How's your peace? Put a number to it. Scale it one to ten as you think about these concepts, as you think about the way in which they play out for you. What's your peace derived from? What gives you peace of mind? Where is your soul uneasy? Where do you find yourself anxious? These are the places, the nooks and crannies of our souls to which God's Spirit wants to come in and fill in to say, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to be anxious about that. You can have peace with God and peace with the world and peace with the uncontrollability of nature. Jesus, would you speak to us? Would you touch areas of our hearts where perhaps we need peace? And maybe today there's some of us who would say, my life is so restless and so hectic. I have zero peace in my life. Jesus wants to come to you. He says, you can have my peace. My power is made perfect in this life that you're living. And I want to invite you into a relationship with your heavenly Father through me. All you have to do is trust that there's opportunity, that there's grace available for you to ask me to come and to be your peace, to reconnect you and reacquaint you with God, to repent of the ways in which you've fallen short and to ask for a fresh start. This is the peace that God offers to you. You might want to take that opportunity today just to declare your desire. Jesus, I want your peace in my life. I believe that you have more for me than I am currently experiencing, and I would like some of the peace that you offer. Jesus, would you allow your presence and your spirit now to come in and to affect our lives? And as we go through this week, would you help us to carry peace with us, to be peacemakers as your word instructs us to do, that we would tear down the walls of hostility that our culture wants to build up over every single issue, and that we would walk through and destroy the things that separate us and instead find unity under one head, even Christ Jesus. God, would you build among us a spiritual house for which you can live in, and would you inspire and instruct us to carry out your peace, your shalom, the world as it ought to be 
in our lives and significant relationships. Heavenly Father, we love you, Jesus. We trust you, Holy Spirit. We invite you in, and would you speak to us now and throughout this week? All God's kids agreed together and said, Thank you.